with speakers from Microsoft, Barclays and beyond. Today's episode gives you the lowdown on the law, the regulations and the top things you need to be aware of in the areas of higher education and public sector compliance. So we've got quite a big panel, uh, quite a big topic. Um, so first of all, I'm going to ask each of the panel to quickly introduce themselves uh, and where they're from, uh, and then we'll sort of get into the content. So if I start with the far right. I'm Alistair McNaught, and I worked for JISC for many years in terms of accessibility specialism, and now I'm working independently. Uh, I'm George Rhodes. Uh, I've worked with local government and universities uh, on their accessibility and I've recently just moved to the Home Office, but I'm speaking about work that I previously did uh, personally. Hiya, I'm Aaron Pryor. Um, I've recently moved to Microsoft. Um, before that, I was 25 years a civil servant across all aspects of the government, but particularly relevant to this is I worked on the original Equality Act 2006, the 2010 variant, and the public sector equality duty. Cool. Thanks, Owen. Uh, hi, I'm Paul Smythe. Uh, many of you might have heard me yesterday. So I'm uh, Head of Digital Accessibility for Barclays. Um, and on a voluntary basis, I'm the um, Disability Sector Champion for Web Accessibility, um, supporting uh, UK government. Thank you. So I'm Abby James. I'm an accessibility consultant with AbilityNet. Uh, previously, I was a research fellow at the University of Southampton and continue to take some research activities on and going. And I've been involved in many policy aspects about implementing accessibility and assistive technology. So as you've probably realised, most of us are talking actually from perspectives outside our employers or from historical positions as well. So it's going to be quite interesting for us. So now, before we start to get into content, I'm going to ask you to tell us where you're from. So this is going to be a show of hands activity. Sorry, not technological. Could you put your hands up if you are from central government? Okay, we have a few. Can you keep your hands up throughout this? Local government. Keep your hands up. No local government. All right. Uh, arm's length public sector bodies. Anybody public sector? Okay, so we're about 20% now. Uh, universities, education, health sector, anything that's that yet. So we're about 50%. Okay, thank you. So about 50% of you probably might be or definitely are a public sector body or have some responsibilities under things like the Equality Act anticipatory duty. Can I ask you to put your hands up if you know if your organisation has recently published or updated their accessibility statement? Uh, 40% are we saying there? Okay, right, that's okay. That's good to know. Right, can I ask if there's anybody in here who sells software or browser-based software or apps or content to public sector education health? Right, that's about another 20 or percent or so. So basically, most of you in the room in your professional lives are going to be affected by the public sector regulations. I'm going to quickly give you just a brief technical outline of what that means before we move on to our panellists. So the public sector regulations, it was mentioned a couple of times if you were here yesterday. At the beginning, we had a session about carrot and stick. We were talking about regulations are a stick. Uh, And actually, it was quite nice that at the end of the day, we finished with a panel, which Paul was on about culture and championing accessibility across the organisation, which is sort of the carrot side of it as well. The public sector regulations um, came into act in the UK in August 2018. Uh, They are UK law. So let's get the B word out of the way. (laughs) Started off as an EU directive. So EU countries may be represented here. It's exactly the same directive, but it's now UK law and staying UK law. 
Um, as part of that, uh, public sector bodies have to meet an accessibility requirement, which is defined um, as perceivable, operable, understandable and robust. It does not specify a particular standard. It references at the moment a European standard called EN 301549, which is aligned to WCAG. So there is lots of technicalities over the standards or things, but basically it's saying anything that is in a browser by next September has to be accessible and any apps for your public-facing audience must be accessible by uh, June 2021. The next requirement is for you to publish details about that in an accessibility statement where you must say how you comply and if you don't comply, uh, what you're going to do about it and also if there are any accessibility problems for you as a user, who to contact. Yay, that's my big thing. <laughs> and the third requirement from the, and the regulations is it requires the government to monitor this. And they have to take a sample of sites, which is quite spe specific in terms of who's involved in that sample, in terms of different types of organisations. Sample that, um, which uh, by the time it's ramped up in the UK will be 2,000 sites in that sample. So quite a big challenge to do, anybody who does accessibility testing. And there will also be in-depth audits as well. And that will all be reported to the EU. We've still got that in our law. But all the EU countries will be doing the same system as well. So that's the technical aspects from it. What I'm now going to ask um, Alistair to do, who's been working a lot with universities and colleges, is to talk about actually the practicalities of implementing this. And then as a sort of follow-up from that, I'm going to ask Paul to talk from a bit from a user perspective, from an assistive technology user and supporting communities who talk about accessibility, about what this really means to get us going. So, Alistair. OK, thank you very much. So there's a story that's quite important in the way I approach all of this. Uh, when the the first rumblings of the legislation uh, came to the ears of college principals, and some of them haven't got there yet, but a couple of years back, I was talking to somebody and they said, oh, my principals just heard about this legislation that's coming in. And he said to me that it shouldn't be difficult, we just have to shut down the VLE, the, the learning platform. <laughs> and that is the, the real unintended consequence that I was desperate to avoid because digital is the solution it's not the problem but digital that's not done accessibly can be a problem but it's so important to recognize that whilst compliance is important culture trumps compliance because if your compliance makes you do things that actually undermine the culture of giving as many people as possible as good an experience as possible then you're going in the wrong direction so my first point that I want to make that's really important in an educational context, perhaps less so in some of the other public sector areas where you're not necessarily face-to-face -face with the community you're nurturing, but my first key point is that at the heart of accessibility is a human. And we must remember that. So taking down the, the virtual learning environment, taking down the video clips that aren't 100% compliant, that could impact on lots of humans badly. Um, so we need to do that balancing act. The second thing is that in order to do that, that means having risks. It means having an intelligent approach to compliance. It means knowing how you use reasonable um, adjustments, disproportionate burdens and those sorts of things. That requires risk taking that therefore requires buy-in from the top. And too many 
colleges and universities that I've worked with are being driven in terms of their accessibility from somebody in the middle management with no power over budgets, no power over staff training and no power over risk taking. And that's wrong. So it has to be bought in from the top. And if you want to help your senior managers buy in from the top, just ask them a very simple question. How many students do we want to knowingly exclude? Because that is what you'll be doing if it's not bought in from the top. How many students don't we care if they have a really rubbish experience? Okay, so that's a good question to our senior managers. And that, of course, has implications for training and for development. And training in big organisations is very often um, one size fits all. And because it's not about compliance, it's ultimately about that culture change. Training needs to be role-based because you don't want to be going to your marketing team and your procurement team and your library teams and so on and just giving them a list of things that they have to do. What you want to do is engage them, hearts and minds, with solving the problem. So you need to be helping them with role-specific training that helps them unpack what their role does to impact positively or negatively on your students, your users. And I think that way you can bring them, bring them in. I've had far more success talking to a team and saying, let's have a look at some of your content. I'd like you four to take the role of this person, you four to take the role of that person, and have a go at using your content. And very quickly they say, oh, that was a really horrible experience, but I know what I could do better, or I could try this a different way. So getting them on board is, is still part of that training being role-specific. Um, and then the last two things, don't assume that when you reach 100% accessibility, all your students or all your end users will have benefited because so many of the students that I've worked with, nobody has ever told them how to benefit from an accessible PDF, an accessible web page, an accessible Word document. Nobody's ever told them the tricks, the productivity benefits that that will give them. So make sure that you tell people what they can do as a result of your accessibility investments. And lastly, use the accessibility statement, which is a core part of this legislation. Use that to boast about what you have been able to do, to benefit people with how they can benefit from what you've done, to know what you haven't yet been able to do so that you can at least have a roadmap and a direction to go in. Thank you, thank you, Alistair. Really great points about training there. Paul. Yeah, sure. So, um, thanks, Abby and Alistair. I, I think just building off that, just so we'll crystal clear, my mind, if I was a, a college or council sitting in the audience, you know, I'd be thinking through that, OK, well, we've got this inbound legislation that's here now. It's, it's saying that my website and shiny digital services, you know, I need to audit against WACAG. I need to um, show the bits that work, the bits that don't work and what I'm doing about it. And, you know, I, I need to have a clearer feedback mechanism for people to sort of to contact me, you know, to ask for things in a reasonable adjustment. And for me, it's that feedback mechanism, you know, so as, a, as an organisation, you know, accessibility at organisation.com or whatever it is, it's so critical and such a good opportunity to really get that feedback of, of you know, ha, um, how well you're, you're doing. Um, 
it, it would be nice in, in many ways right, to have um, some of the, the, the government folks from uh, sort of GDS or Quality and Human Rights Commission to actually sort of talk through the, uh, from their side. Um, I think um, with uh, it's P- Perda, right? Perda? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, I get really confused. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was getting Perda and the Pirates uh, Code from the Pirates of the Caribbean muddled up. <laughs> so when people sort of talk from government about, you know, oh, can't say anything, Perda, yeah. Um, for something to do with Pirate Code. But, um, you know, from their side, as, um, j- just to recap what I'm f- uh, from yesterday, you know, so as, as, um, as a council and college, you know, you're making a website more, more WACAG compliance, recognising that a lot of websites out there, public, private sector, is such a low bar currently. So I think to Anissa's point, it's not expecting perfection, but it's about demonstrating progress that uh, you're improving. And really what the statement sort of says is, here's how to contact us, and if you're still not um, getting your voice heard, then here's how to contact the central government department. So this um, Equality Advisory Support Service. Uh, actually, pop your hand up. Have you heard of the Equality Advisory Support Service? Oh, yeah. How many? Okay, we've got about 10, 15 percent. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and again, from, from my side, it's really important. So from the, the voice of customers, so think about, um, you know, to say, uh, citizens or students in, in, in this aspect of content, contacting that organisation if things are broken, um, if you're still not getting heard, contacting the central body and how they will be passing that over to uh, um, Government Digital Services, GDS, to again add into the sampling, the monitoring. You know, there's thousands of sites out there, um, the GDS folks monitoring a few hundred uh, of those to, to then actually, you know, show the relevant resources and to encourage uh, and work for, with those uh, areas to improve. So, you know, it's just really useful to think through from the sort of voice of customer perspective or where this is a, a great opportunity around the better feedback mechanisms. And really linking from um, what we heard uh, yesterday with uh, Malin from Norway, you know, this is all about public sector now, but let's be really clear that this is coming to the private sector um, you know, it's in sort of consultation mode at the moment, European Accessibility Act, very much up in the air with the, the B word. But I think we can expect over the next, you know, two, three years, this sort of regulation again, sort of broadening out, um, you know, to, to, uh, to, to the private sector, which is, you know, a really great thing. So for, for many of the, the private sector folks in the room, really important to, again, sort of make sure you're looking closely at how people are really sort of implementing, embedding and really uplifting the accessibility of their, their digital services too. So those were the key points. Thank you, Paul. I've just, I'm going I'm to get you lot involved again. Uh, so this is a question I like to ask when talking about the regulations. How many of you in your organisation knows... Who will deal with accessibility mm. complaints? Thirty uh, percent. That is pretty good mm. going. I'm normally cool. about ten, fifteen percent. Right. How many of you have left a website because of a usability problem or an app? Come on, panels, put up. Yeah, ninety percent. How many people have left because of an accessibility problem? Yeah, so there's still probably more people in here who've left a website because of an accessibility problem than people know have a complaint system within an organisation. So actually, this is one of the big changes we've been talking about, actually, compliance, but actually it's about processes to deal with accessibility issues, accessibility testing and accessibility planning. And maybe George and Aaron, you can talk about this from sort of actually being inside these large public sector organisations. Yeah, so... From my experience, I've, I've done this with a county council and I've done this with a university. Um, 
I, th- I think I'm going to say something that's been said about 15 times already over the last two days. Uh, start off with that senior management buy-in, um, get them to understand the, the support you need to, to be able to go out to teams and engage them on that. Uh, and then once you've got all that buy-in, once you've got those teams that are reared up and have had their training and know what they want to do about it and get on with it, you, you need ways in which to demonstrate that you are doing something about this, um, both so that you can feed back to your senior management and say, this is, this is what we've done, this is making a real impact, uh, and also so that you've got the documentation you need, uh, all of the facts and figures for if and when GDS or a member of the public comes knocking with a complaint. Um, so from my experience, we've, we've done that a couple of different ways to fit those different organisations. Uh, but really, it's all around having a fairly well thought out auditing process, um, you know, knowing whether you're working with your quality assurance teams, knowing whether you have an accessibility team that is, is the centre of excellence and auditing in your organisation or whether it sits with project teams, um, knowing how they're recording that in a nice and common way uh, and then knowing how you're collecting all of that together so you've, you can you know, search all of these audits that you're going to have to do and be able to provide the feedback, be able to point to where the accessibility statements are, be able to point to uh, minutes of meetings or other documentation that shows where you've had some of those difficult discussions that will inform your disproportionate burden assessments and uh, other additional documentation that you're going to need. Yeah, so there's a couple of questions here, people talking about, you know, is it possible, you know, we're seeing a lot of partially compliance, people saying, is it possible to achieve oh. current technical <laughs> standards? Oh, oh, partially compliance, that was an argument. So back back when, um, back in 2017, um, I was previously at a, a local authority um, and we offered to be a bit of a pathfinder with the new regulations and kind of feel our way through. And there was an awful lot of debate done with central government around was partial doable? Was there such a thing as a partially compliant? Um, it's one that I'm more than happy to chat and, yeah, and to debate about. about. But for, for me, I, I very much took the view of, no, it's not. It is a, it is a, there is a line, there is a pass or fail um, kind of scenario in this that we shouldn't be settling for partial. Um, we should be going going to the to the length of the law really with this. So I've I originally agreed with <laughs> you because Aaron introduced me to a lot of uh, the accessibility work that I've gotten into. Um, we worked at the same county council previously, um, but I think. I've probably come around to the other side now Ooh, that George. most people are going to say partially <laughs> compliant. Yeah, most people will, yeah. Arguably because, for many of us, our web estates are going to be vast. The platforms we're going to have are going to be so huge and often contributed to by you know, a devolved list of people that it's going to be so difficult for you to absolutely say we are fully compliant. For small websites, for something with only a couple of people that you know are going to absolutely ensure everything is fully compliant, be glad that you can say this website is fully compliant. But for many of the others, you are probably going to have an ongoing battle where you just cannot say with absolute certainty, bearing in mind this document is a, is a legal challenge thing, um, that you are 
100% fully WCAG compliant and nobody could possibly find anything wrong with your website. And just as a, you know, if you say partially compliant, you have to say what you're going to do to improve that. And Alistair, I'm sure you have opinions on you know, trying to reach that high bar of WCAG, which is incredibly technical at some points, can be so challenging. Well, I think something that's really important is just to, to recognise that the whole point of communicating your content is to get as many people as possible getting as much benefit as possible. And I know there's a lot of organisations, I've worked with some local sector organisations, where there is one person that puts stuff on the website. That's very easy to achieve full compliance. If you're in an educational setting and you have um, perhaps 3,000 staff uploading content every single day, and some of them are part-time and sessional, some of them don't get paid for training, there's all these other issues where it can... It can be a nightmare, like you say. But I think in that case, it's, it's well worth having almost a progression of expectations. So in a university context or a college context, I would expect all the marketing videos to be 100% compliant. I wouldn't expect the videos that biology teachers just uploaded from the field course at five o'clock um, at, you know, on a Saturday morning or something because they've just got back. I wouldn't expect those to, to all have scene description and um, I, I just think I'd get them stopping doing any videos then. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm going to ask an interesting question here for Paul because one's come here saying, uh, what happens if you're only partially compliant um, when, when your CEO asks and you'll say you're partially compliant? And I know probably from your private um, organisation experience of actually having to say, do the CEOs actually understand all these nuances or are they just going to want that tick box exercise from it? Yeah, I mean, certainly for Barclays, yes, they do. And that's lots of upwards management about making sure that senior leaders really understand and buy into this. And they know that this is a yardstick that us and other companies use. So again, I think when you say that well, we haven't met this, we're somewhere below this, then there are all these questions is, you know, Gosh, you know what? 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 What are you doing to make sure that we are back to par to what you know the minimum legal expectations are? Um, but again, you know, let's be clear that sort of WACAG doesn't mean by hitting WACAG doesn't mean 100% perfect, right? There's all sorts of uh, you know issues and things we sometimes have to use some common sense to override. Um, so yeah, hopefully that. Yeah, so it's about engaging dialogue and about people having knowledge and understanding, isn't it, about what we actually mean by accessibility. But one of the concerns people have had with these regulations is, is there a risk that this will, well, there seems to be two debates in the Slido. Is this risking going to a litigation style for the US? Or is, is there a means that we, because at the moment, the, the system that's in place for monitoring this and enforcing this doesn't provide any system for fining people for non-compliance. Um, it just goes into the Equality Act EHRC system. Do we see that there is a, a risk of maybe more private litigation? Um, or do we really do need a more financial stick like Norway has demonstrated can be uh, successful in getting uh, at least senior management to engage when you really need them to push through change? Yeah. I think empowering the end users is very important and I've been involved with the National Union of Students in helping um, them understand the productivity benefits for every single one of their students, not just disabled students but international students with second languages and so on. Now, when you begin to understand what you could be benefiting from and then you go and try to access content online and realise that it doesn't have any of those features that you've been promised would be brilliant 
that is a way of creating an upward pressure on um, you know, tutors, lecturers, managers, etc. So I think there's real benefit in the end user knowing what they should be able to achieve in order to, to help managers be persuaded that maybe they could get more complaints if they don't meet it. I, I think it is. I, I think you're 100% right. I think this is a, a humanistic message. That's the core of this. We've, we've seen time and time again with legal peril over regulations. It doesn't drive the right behaviours. It, it really doesn't. This is about generating both interest at the top but a groundswell at the bottom. This starts with employee resource groups coming together. This starts with shared learning. It really needs to push up like that and become a human story. Why does this matter? What are the productivity gains? Make it a much more genuine inclusion and equality issue rather than something to the side. And Paul, I know you've done some work with sort of engaging the, the assistive technology user groups about how to complain when services aren't accessible. How do we let people know this regulations are there that they should be expecting this higher level of service from public sector? Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly working with um, uh, disability charities and, and really the disability community to make it really clear um, about where you can go to complain. You know, we know from a click away panel, just that hands up earlier, right, of 80, 90%. If you're encountering barriers, you're, you get frustrated you know, and you'll go elsewhere. So for me, yes, this law's coming in and, and there's the, the sort of supply side of, yes, more organisations making sure that they're, you know, they're partially fully accessible. But for me, it's more about making it even easier, as easy as possible, for people to say where there's problems, and that's going to the organisations. And again, we have these clear central government bodies who are kind of monitoring things and who are enforcing things, um, just so that, again, people can be more um, effective and assertive in where they escalate problems to, which hasn't really happened in the past. Okay, well, I'm going to now, I'm, I'm just, we've got some more technical questions. Um, and, and I just want to see if there's anybody in the room who wants to comment so far, given if we overrun, you're late for lunch. So I'm going <laughs> to keep you all short. So has anybody got any comments on the point of the litigation versus compliance? Mm. Have you got any uh, me- messages on engaging senior leaders within your... I'm going to make Mark run around. No, they all want lunch. Let's see. Okay, right. Okay, let's move on to the more technical mm. questions. Oh. PDFs. how do you encourage lecturers not and and other members of staff including public local government and central government creating pdfs and how do we get across this big technical issue with uh making it easy to create accessible pdfs we can all accept we can make accessible pdfs but it's not necessarily a an low bar it's a high um, challenge and skill and requires money and specialist kits Well, I've just done a blog post on LinkedIn called PDF, Print Devil Format. And that kind of summed it up, the, the, the range of issues that you can have. Now, you can make an accessible PDF, but it needs to be simple to start with. It needs to be accessible to start with. Um, and most people don't. Most of the PDFs that take place in an, an HE institution will come either from PowerPoints being turned into PDF, uh, which causes all kinds of interesting accessibility issues, or indeed uh, will come from scans of books or third-party content. I think knowing the accessibility issues is a starting point because even an inaccessible PDF may be accessible for some people and not others. And that's where the accessibility statement's really important. If you know that all the PDFs that you've got on your course were created in a consistent way by your staff, 
then you can say that you know all these you know these powerpoints or these word documents that have been put into pdf they will all be enable enable you to do this but they won't enable you to do that that's at least a starting point for a lot of people but generally uh, within an he context i would say just try not to use them when you could use something else and with the advent of kind of things like office 365 where word documents can be there and can be accessible on an app uh, on a phone that's uh, there's a good reason for moving away and EPUB, EPUB's wonderful, <laughs> and I wish Microsoft hadn't uh, dropped support for uh, EPUB in Edge. That's another conversation. Don't return and look at me. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump in with a technical one here, but I'm going to answer myself. Somebody's saying, what about all these old sites, historical sites? If you are going through these regulations, I think what, we really, what people really need is time, time to understand it and, and to go through it. There are exceptions for historical content. There are his ex- exceptions for archive site that's no longer there. But if, if it is in active use, then it should be accessible. And that does mean existing sites by September 20, so 2020. Uh, new sites had to be compliant by 2019. So new sites were sites since September 2018 or substantially revised mm. sites. Don't ask us what that means because nobody can decide. Um, so there, there are technicals. And, uh, and then as AbilityNet, we run webinars and there are blogs where we go through all these technicalities uh, and questions that arise. Okay, let's see if we've got anything else. Mark, have you seen anything? That's... Just whilst we're waiting, yeah. I mean, can I ask, ask George? So, you know, we've had this legislation for a couple of months. So if it's a, a new public sector site, you know, they should have done all these things and at least had an accessibility statement, you know, do, do you have a, a, a view on um, ha, how, many, uh, how many folks are, are doing that? Oh, I knew someone was going to ask me that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, so the main reason why I'm talking today and the personal work that I did in my free time um, was uh, I, I spent some time in between my roles uh, looking now at 1,441 public sector websites which was all local governments, fire services, police forces, universities, colleges and NHS organisations to see not only whether they have a compliant accessibility statement at the moment, because some people might argue that a lot of those websites are going to be existing, so don't need one yet, but they're all well-in-use sites and accessibility isn't you know, brand new with this new regulation. It's something they should have been advising on in the first place. Um, so I had a look at all of these websites and had a look at whether people have published a compliance statement or whether they've got, you know, a good attempt at some accessibility advice, where you can go to contact someone if you find a problem, where there are any issues that they know they've got going on at the moment, all, all that kind of stuff, or other tools and things that they have embedded into their website to assist assist users. Um, I do have some results from that research. Uh, at last count, I've seen 110 compliance statements out of those 1,441. Just, so just in terms of compliant, there is a specific stat, specific template you need to follow. There's specific information that even duck to the specific wording in some sentences. That's yeah. what I mean. You can have an accessibility statement, but that might no, still so not there, be correct. There are sort of five things you have to have in the accessibility statement. So you've got to have your list of known issues. You've got to have what's being done about them. Uh, you have to have your contact details. You have to have information on the uh, escalation process, which is the Equality Advisory and Support Service, and then the EHRC. And you have to have in there uh, one very specific sentence which says... <laughs> 
this or these websites or mobile applications are fully, partially not compliant with the, the regulations. So those are the five things you have to have. Um, and that's, that's what I checked for when I was looking for compliance. Um, so those 110 have met that. There are other things as well that you need to have in certain cases, like where you've claimed disproportionate burden or where you have it, things that are ex- exceptions. Um, but then all of the, all of the others, the, the other sort of 80% odd, whereas, no, it's 90, 93% or something, I think it's only about 7% of the websites I looked at were, had a compliance statement. With the rest of them, you then have to look at whether they fulfil some of those or whether they're providing other advice that is also useful. Um, it's, a, it's a big, long way to go. Mm. All right, I'm going to ask a question that's high up on the list. I'm going to ask Aaron to, ask, to answer this from a technical point of view, and then I'm going to ask if there's anybody in the audience who could do this. So there's somebody who's asking here, do any HE institutions have a process for quality checking the accessibility of content academics are providing, or any content providers in any public sector? Who's responsible for it? So Aaron, from a qualities law point of view, is it the organisation's responsibility or is it the author's responsibility? Um, I think from a quality point of view, it's the organisation's problem. Okay. They represent the organisation, they're, they're part of that. It very much sits there, very much sits with them. Um, so you need to think carefully as well about who that focal point is going to be for those issues. Certainly what George and I found worked well back in, in LRG space, the local authority space, was actually tying this together with equality. You normally have very well-structured, very well-constructed equality forums and equality managers. One thing we, we strove towards back in the days of the Disability Rights Commission was to make accessibility and disability part of a whole equalities issue, not something separate. So to me, it's a logical thing to bring this in as part of the whole equality journey. There's already a duty under the Equality Act for when projects are being undertaken to look at the protected characteristics. And for the public sector, there's an extra burden under the public sector equality duty. So why not bring accessibility in there? It's already similar in nature. Make that part of the consideration from day one and therefore bring inclusive design forward. The, the two work together. Getting the technical skills into those <laughs> existing teams, because it is a more technical route. Yeah. So I'm now going to throw it open. You do have to work. Is there anybody who's from higher education or from a public sector organisation who has put in place a system to talk about quality, to test any content that's there? <laughs> oh, no, no, hands, no. From an HE context, I would strongly recommend working with your student unions and and helping them be part of your quality checkers because as well as the equality elements there's you know every organization has its own quality assurance and i know with with the university of kent we did some effective work uh, for new modules a new module that um, had to go through a specific quality assurance check we added um, some quite specific details about how will you ensure accessibility in the teaching and learning of this new module and I'd say actually use your internal resource. Mm. Diverse user testing is so great. We do it. When I do it, I learn so much actually seeing somebody. We can do all these technical tests and automatic tests as we've been hearing. But when you actually get that feedback, and that really always feeds into the design process, your large organisations, whether you're NHS, local authority or universities, you'll have disabled employee groups and, and disabled mm. students groups. And actually getting them involved in testing is a great skill for them. So with our computer scientists, we, when I was teaching, it's always like, you know, this is a really good thing to put on your CV. You can do this testing. So use that resource. And that's something that can be included in your 
accessibility statement, we have done this testing. And as accessibility standards evolve, so as WCAG or the European standards evolve, there is in the background with my WCAG hat on, you know, move to actually get organisations to include user testing as part of their compliance. So it won't just be this checklist. You will get more points if you Mm. prove you are compliant by testing with users. So that's uh, an important thing to keep in the back of the mind and then move. Because there is a a feeling, there is a risk that this will just become checkbox. Press a button, I've done an automated check. No red flags. Yay, I can say that on my accessibility statement. Well, it's not really true, (laughs) to say the least. Right, okay, have we got any more? Mark, uh, have you been looking at seeing? I had the the thing about the the use of resources. I, I think there's a question about there's some things in here that we're probably not going to solve, like why isn't the, why what, if their cuts are being made in local government and all the other stuff. <laughs> I think it's difficult to see. I, I guess the question is here: How realistic does this feel? Um, you know, I, I, th- I think the bar is so high. You're saying so many people are failing, and just mm. in that simple test, you've checked. I mean, where are the priorities, or how realistic is it? Is it, you know, if you're sitting in the room thinking, I can't take all that on, mm. where, where do you start? Where do you get your teeth into it first? Well, I, I, I do think it is a priority, not just because we're all sitting here and going, oh yeah, accessibility should be a priority, but genuinely, you know, we already heard yesterday about the purple pound, that also has a, an effect in, in the public sector, certainly for local government. There's, there's an awful lot of overlap. Um, we've, we've been doing some stuff with libraries uh, and their digital inclusion uh, agenda. Um, one of the things that we see is um, many users with disabilities uh, who are the most common users of some of our services, particularly for uh, benefits and um, uh, social care, uh, that the impact of allowing them to use all of our services and keep their independence without having to have additional care from the council or a, uh, additional visits from workers, those things do... It's hard to measure those, those costs coming back in when it's the IT department doing, doing a fix, but the savings are coming from social care. But all of those things do save costs and deliver a better quality of service for all of our customers at the end of the day. And I think just building off off Mark's question is it's ultimately saying, you know, from from the the GDS and government, there's some here's what we expect, what you ought to be doing in terms of the how, you know, uh, 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 fellow panellists, are you aware of any any really useful practical resources that you've used and that you direct others to use to really understand this in a bit more detail and what best practice looks like in terms of who's doing this well? Funnily enough... Uh, (laughs) Um, so Alistair's thrown me under the bus almost a little bit here but uh, myself Alistair and Abby and Aaron actually uh, have all contributed to uh, a selection of guidance um, that that we've used and tested at the coalface in the real world um, on the Lexdis site uh, lexdis.org.uk so that's um, lexdis.org uh, originally dot org dot uk sorry dot org dot uk um, that that's included all kinds of different stuff that our collective know how has mm. has worked through for a lot of these different challenges so we've we've covered accessibility statements we've covered how we've tried auditing processes and feeding that back and recording that we've looked at things for 
our responsibilities when we're buying third-party platforms and how we integrate those into our systems. Uh, we've done things on accessible events and VLEs and learning environments and alternate formats and quick accessibility checks. Um, there's, there's a lot of resources there, but there's loads out there wherever mm-hmm. you go. If you just start Googling some of this stuff... Um, you know, AbilityNet's got loads of fantastic resources. WebAIM's Web-Aim, got loads yeah. of fantastic resources. There's plenty out there for you to go and look at if you just start start Googling and it. Just on the Lexis site, it's all open, creative comments, and if anybody has resources that they're happy to share, they can be added to it. And then there's also GISCmail have an email group called Digital Accessibility Regulations, which is sharing lots. It's FEHE focused, but anybody can join it. So that's a good way. And I think it is about the community. And I'm going to respond to Mark's question about is the bar too high? We heard uh, at least two people yesterday say what I always say in any training, accessibility is a journey. It's a journey because technology is always changing. So we're always going to be on that journey. And what I think is really good and is different to where we might see in other countries, and the American 508, you must pass, is within the accessibility statement, you've got to say your plan. Mm. And it's about moving forward, not just going, I can't do this. This is impossible. It's about actually, well, we're here, and we're going to get to here, and we're going to then try and aim as high as possible. And that slope might change, and it will be different depending on different organisations. But the bar isn't too high to actually sit down and plan how you're going to improve. So can I ask a question? George, I think you're probably the first person I come to. Um, when you're looking at those uh, thousands of accessibility statements, which sort of plans jumped out at you as being the most useful or valuable or high quality or you know, um, where they have got relevance in, in the context of it? Obviously, what's a useful thing to put in the plan to say that I, you're going to do? I think just going off what's been asked for in terms of compliance is a good start. Um, the, the original EU template had two sort of sections to it. So section one was that mandatory stuff, which has become the requirements for, for us. Uh, and section two was that additional information. So where you can say, uh, you know, we've got these tools or this team's particularly good if you're having issues with this service. Um, any, anything that can just help make that journey easier for users. So when they, when they come onto the website and you're having a difficulty, you're looking for assistance, you find the statement, that's where they should be listing this stuff, and it goes, we know we've got a problem with this, this service, talk to this team, they're really good at helping you out. Then you're, then you're sat there feeling like, oh, the, it's not going to be on the phone to the customer support centre or whatever, going through all of that rigmarole. That company has thought about your needs in advance, thought about what you know, challenges you're going to face and how they can help you. That's, that's where you want to be from a, a good side. Um, it was often easier to pick out the bad ones, to be honest. <laughs> um, many, many I saw, some were completely blank, um, there was a great one that was genuinely a completely blank accessibility page. And then at the bottom, it says, was this page useful? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not particularly. Um, and, and others where people have, have tried, but maybe the, the understanding of how to do it in an effective way isn't quite there. So they, they've tried, but it hasn't quite come off correctly. So uh, I've seen one that was, uh, someone was attempting to make their contact information available in many different languages for their diverse area that they covered. Um, 
what they did is they provided their little sentence saying, here's our contact number and email address, um, in 15 different languages, all listed down the page. Um, so you've got a page there with 15 different languages on it. Um, the second problem with that is that all of those languages were actually one big picture of text uh, in 15 different languages. So that was, that was fantastic. And no alt text, obviously. Um, so there's, there's struggles like that, or I've seen ones where this guide is specifically for blind people. Here's some uh, screenshots with rings drawn around the buttons that you need to, need to press. No alt text, and then the uh, tool that it's telling you how to use also wasn't navigable by keyboard. So that was, that was quite a poor one. Um, there were many bad examples, but really I, good examples. I think, you know, taking yeah. on Paul's point about in, in our, you know, mm. user power, mm. hopefully, you know, it can be quite scary to these organisations about putting up statements, particularly when people think, well, am I covered by these regulations or not? It's like, well, actually, hopefully, I feel, and you know, as an assistive technology user, I want to be able to go to any organisation and go, before I start the process of trying to find whether this, you know, I say, you know, journal, when I'm being geeky and doing some research, are you going to give me a nice HTML version or are you going to give me a horrible PDF with two columns in really small times, new Roman, eight-point text? And you go, oh, I can't read that. I'm going to look at your accessibility statement and check it out. And it's going to be like you're advertising to me in the future. And I think that's really important when we start to particularly engage with the private sector and particularly when we're talking about widening participation, encouraging that within universities or digital inclusion in services as well. But actually, it, it, it won't just be about compliance. It will be about advertising how inclusive you are mm. to the community that we're but There is another element, though, as well, because it's also not just about saying you know, we don't use all these horrible PDFs or something. There is, in some of the best accessibility statements I've seen in some of the courses I've been auditing in um, universities, they've actually said, you know, because we've done this this way, you will be able to do X, Y, Z, because most students don't know about that. Most users don't know that. So the two-column PDF example, for example, if... You know, if you say you know, we have a lot of PDFs, but be aware of how easily you can reflow many of these. View, zoom, reflow, and they look at one column and they magnify as much as they want, and it's still perfectly legible. And I, you know, working with the University of Kent, um, when George was working with with Ben at the University of Kent, we had a student who very nearly gave up her course because nobody had shown her how to reflow a PDF. And all her PDFs from the journals were two columns and she needed very high magnification and she didn't want to have to scroll all over the place. So there is no reason on earth why your accessibility statement can't be a positive thing that is actually helping Mm. students with very varied and often quite low digital skills. Yeah, they're good at Instagram and Tinder, but beyond that, not necessarily... Um, it can be a really positive, uplifting thing. I, I've got another story on, on that to, to, to that effect, again, from the University of Kent. Um, one, of the, one of the students we worked with, he was, he was a, a, he's, he's a visually impaired student. Um, he was doing a year over with the University of Kent. He, he's um, German. He was doing international law. Um, because he came and started doing some of the accessibility stuff with us and... He learned about the services that were there at the university to help him because we made that information available so he knew. Um, he's now transferred full-time and is just staying at the University of Kent because he, he feels that 
they did a much better job of addressing his needs. So it really does become this hook to get people to, to come to your organisation. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to finish off by just finishing off a... All right. I'm going to finish off. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've mentioned something about the, the process. Is it clear yet what the process is going to be? Um, you know, you mentioned Perda, but it is what's happening next is that they're going to uh, test some sites. Yeah. Um, that's one bit of it. But the, just beyond that is how much trouble are people going to be in? Because that's obviously the, the, the elephant in the room is, so how much trouble do you get in if you don't pass? Does anybody know yet? Is there any sense of the fines? This carrot and stick thing is nice, but is there any indication of what the penalties will be? once these tests have been carried out. So I'll, I'll answer, shall I answer that up until the point it gets to EAS and EHRC? Mm-hmm. So from the monitoring point of view, this is a system that's been put in from Europe. So this is all European countries. Um, they have to monitor sites. And the sample is specific in terms of local, central government. But there has to be an element of that from disability groups. So they will consult with disability groups and say, who should we talk to? So if there's particular areas... You know, people saying, my GP surgeries, they're covered. Uh, <laughs> you know, things like that are really, are really difficult, then they might get more sampled. Um, also, in terms of the UK, Government Digital Services, part of the Cabinet Office, who have responsibility for this, if, you compl- if a complaint gets escalated to them, you're going to go in the sample. Also, there's a proportion that if you've been sampled before, they will resample to see how you've changed. It's a, bit, it's a really complex algorithm, so I'm feeling a bit more sympathetic for them. And uh, then at that point, they will contact you with your reports and they will tell you the problems. What's not clear is what happens then. Mm-hmm. Um, those you talking yesterday with uh, Melin in Norway, they have a timescale process. Uh, we haven't got clarity on that yet. Um, I think from a disability user group point of view, Matt Hat. We need timescale, particularly you know, if you're in a student or if you're in a health situation, you're not going to wait two years for an accessibility fix. You need to know that this is going to be addressed quickly. Um, and if it is not fixed, potentially you then could be escalated to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Indeed, exactly. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's the other part of the equation, that when people aren't maybe being worried enough about that sort of outcome, is as soon as these sort of findings and results are published, you're obviously exposing those vulnerabilities in the organisation. Straight away, you're opening to what we used to call back in the day secondary challenge under the Equality Act. Straight away, you're, you're laying that out and open for everybody to challenge. So expect those sort of secondary challenges to rise. I've, I've already seen an increase in the number of FOIs mm. emerging. Freedom um, of information. Yeah, freedom yeah, of information. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been keeping an eye on the Freedom of Information Act that, uh, requests that have been coming out and many public sector bodies have started receiving questions about how they are moving towards becoming accessible. Um, it's on the increase. I talk about a 60-second vulnerability with the organisations I work with because... I say to them that if a disabled student came to me, if I was a solicitor or a lawyer, a disabled student came to me and said, look, I'm having real problems accessing this page or this content, it would take 60 seconds for somebody that vaguely knows what they're talking about in terms of accessibility to be able to say, yeah, it doesn't meet the accessibility requirement. And, and immediately, because the Act, paragraph 12 of the Act, links directly not meeting the accessibility requirement is a failure to make reasonable adjustment and then it gives a whole bunch of sections of the Equality Act and and so on that will have been broached so 
my fear would not be the EHRC. My fear would be students that know what they're talking about, parents that want the best for their kids. Yeah, I think that, and the other thing is, if you haven't got an accessibility statement, that is the Cabinet Office Minister who's responsible for that. So it, go, it's a, it will be a quite quick yes, no, you haven't got one. If you think you, shouldn't, you don't need to have one, you're going to have to justify that. So um, it's, it's the question of, do we put one up or not? Well, that doesn't go through this monitoring process. It's very easy to find there isn't one there. Cool, thank you. I'm going to have to draw that to a close, I'm afraid, because it is lunchtime. So um, I'd like to say a huge thank you to the panel and to Abby for um, managing that time so well. Thank you all.